This morning, I want to speak a little bit about a uh, current event. I've uh, kind of my preaching style, if you've heard me uh, over the years, is probably a little bit more on the expository preaching style. And I've noticed that those that hold to that style, one of the good things that uh, the good ones do is they'll bring up current events because sometimes people can feel that as we're uh, studying through verse by verse that we kind of lose out on what's going on in the world now. And I will say, I, I grew up in this church, um, lived here for about 20 years, and then in 2001 I moved over to Columbus to begin my uh, college uh, career over in Columbus, and I stayed over uh, in northwest central Ohio and also worked in northeast Ohio uh, for about the next 16 years, so I was away for about 20 years. And then in uh, 2021, the call suddenly came, like literally a call on my cell phone for a job in Newark that I had not applied for, and I felt that you know we were to come back to Newark uh, at that time. I was very excited, actually, about the opportunity to come back to Newark. Uh, you know, I wanted, I, I remembered, I had this a fond remembrance of kind of that gritty wholesomeness of this city and the people that I knew, and I wanted my children to grow up and experience um, a little bit of that, even though, you know, they were entering into high school. Um, I'll have to say, though, when I got here and I started my job, I, I was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> you know, I kind of noticed on 21st Street as we had driven back and forth for those eight years uh, between Marysville and, and Newark, I noticed, you know, the vape shops starting to move in and the marijuana shops starting to move in. And, and it appeared that Newark was starting to change, but I didn't really realize the change that had occurred in those 20 years until I got here. And I started, uh, you know, interviewing people, uh, you know, because I help out with the interviews and, and that process at work. And Seeing how many people, you know, are addicted to marijuana now and how many people are, you know, frequenting those vape shops and how that has entered into just our community and into our schools. You know, my kids got into the schools and the schools, you know, are not quite as wholesome as, you know, really I can uh, recall that they were when I went there. And, you know, it seems like everybody that I talk to, you know, and this is not unique to Newark, but it's of everywhere, you know, are addicted to some sort of pornography. I've seen also a huge uh, interest that's building in our society towards the uh, occult and witchcraft. So Friday night, my wife, she mentioned she's, she's our social media checker. I don't do social media. I don't like social media, and I don't recommend social media. But she's our social media checker, and, and she's in some mother's groups, and one of the mother's groups had posted something about a demon circus in town, here in Newark, Ohio, actually in Heath. And I said, oh, you know, I wonder what that's about. Is that true? So I had to do my own fact-checking, of course. And sure enough, you know, there is this weekend our local mall has rented out uh, their parking lot to set up what I can only call a satanic circus. Uh, you know, so I, I looked up this group. It looks like they pretty much, you know, hijacked like the French-Canadian acrobatic circus 
concept and then replace that with acts that include you know, half-naked zombies and demon performers who will, as their own advertisements promise, provide you a new show with breathtaking implications, always poised between fun and the most uninhibited fear that, you, that will transport you to a dark world inhabited by creatures with incredible circus act abilities. Wow, is that what we want to do? You know, apparently this company, I found out, they have three shows that are touring the country right now. Uh, One's described as being darker, one more risque, and the other more comedic. Which one we got, I don't know. I can't tell you. But, you know, they, they tell you it's okay because... It's an R-rated performance. They're only going to allow those who are 17 years old and and older into this performance unless, as one uh, person said, you have the cool parents. And then in that case, and they'll allow children as young as 13 into these performances. And of course, at one-third the cost of an adult ticket. You know, they're not targeting children, right? As one press article described the performance, which occurs before a set with a large pentagram uh, is, is prominently displayed, this uh, press article described it as an R-rated horror circus that will, quote, unlock the darkest corner of your mind. So I asked the church this morning, <laughs> when we look out there in our community and we see the problems that we face Is unlocking the darkest corners of our minds really the solution? You know, we're already in the midst of a mental health crisis, the likes of which our nation has never seen. And I would imagine that if you went to the parking lot of our local mall today, that you'd not only see a bunch of parents taking their children to see this filth, but also a bunch of people who had only earlier been sitting in a church pew. You know, I've had this discussion with people that I love dearly about how close we as Christians should be getting to all of these books and movies and other performance that, you know, are designed to frighten. And that's normally the, um, the, the comeback I get. It, it's only designed to frighten you. It's, it's not, there's really nothing in it. And I know, you know, some of these in the past, distant past, you know, we're seemingly innocent production, but can you honestly, in an honest judgment, say that that's still the case today? You know, this type of material, it's really, it's not just designed to frighten, but I believe it's also designed to educate and to indoctrinate in the dark arts. You know, these things, they're designed to dull our senses and to dim our view of Jesus Christ. Is that what the Christian should be a part of? I could go further and have a myriad of verses here, but I'm just going to leave off with the Apostle John's warning in 1 John 5, 1 through 7. He says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. Remember, they were going to take you to your darkness. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And then the apostle continues. He wants to speak to us. He says, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, listen to the promise here, we will have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And I know, you know, people may be sitting here, and and your response may be fear to this. How could this be happening in our community? But only one verse here, and it's actually just part of the verse. 1 John 4, 4b says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So anyways, it seems like, you know, the workers of darkness are doing a pretty good job carrying out their mission of deception and destruction of souls. My question this morning is, would you like to hear what Jesus is doing on the other side of light and life and what his mission is. I'll take a drink, please. <laughs> okay, this morning I'm going to continue in a study that I've, I've been going through mostly on uh, Wednesday nights and um, at some other churches in the book of Matthew. It'll probably take me many years, I imagine, to preach through this, but when you're preaching a, a series like this, each message should have its own standalone component to this, and I promise you that this message will. Um, however, it is part of that series. So you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and while you're doing that, generally I, do, I like to do a meditative reading kind of at the beginning of the service for us to be thinking about and preparing us for the message. And that meditative reading, it came from the Old Testament, Zechariah 13, verse 1, from the ESV. And it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In other words, what's happening here is it's a prophetic vision of what the Messiah would do when he would come, he would cleanse his people from sin and uncleanness. Now, granted, this was said several hundred years before Christ came. So this morning, uh, I just want to kind of remind and, and cover just quickly, you know, what we've covered so far in the book of Matthew. We've been in the first chapter looking at this introduction to the life of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. As we got into the text in the first lesson, we studied those first 17 verses as a unit, which most people will be like, oh man, you preached on the the genealogy of Christ. Yes, I did. And they revealed who Jesus Christ was and how throughout all of human history, history was narrowing down, narrowing down to the promise that is in Jesus Christ. And it narrowed down to Christ. We found out that it was he only who could fulfill those prophecies of the Old Testament given hundreds of years before his birth. We found out that he would reign from the God-appointed line of King David while also bringing Abraham's blessing to all faith-filled peoples regardless of what nation they belonged to. So in the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel was being told that one of these days that blessing will not just be on Israel, but it will be on all nations and all peoples. And that's, of course, what we see today in New Testament. Uh, We saw, you know, this uh, 
that he was going to be a king. He was going to reign from the line of David. And then we were challenged at the end of that message to become a part of his royal genealogy and book of life by being born again into his spiritual lineage through faith. In the next lesson, we studied about how. So we studied the who, we studied now the how Jesus Christ came to earth. And it was via a very unique but necessary virgin conception. We learned how that example, the sole example of virgin conception on this earth, brought together Christ, who was one person with two complete natures. He was both divine and he was human. And how these two natures were absolutely necessary for a substitutionary atonement. One thing that's interesting is uh, the word Genesis appears a lot in the original Greek in, the, in Matthew. And it's, it's the same word when it was translated into the, the Greek uh, later from the Old Testament. That same word is used in the book of Genesis. And we kind of talked about that. And I thought how interesting it is that the, the Bible in the book of Genesis starts out requiring faith from the reader. God does a miraculous work, and it takes faith to believe that it was him who did it. That's why we have this debate about creation and evolution and which one's correct. Many people do not have faith in what God said that he has done. Likewise, many do not have faith when God said that he created Jesus Christ. When he, uh, he, was, he had those you know, two natures... Through virgin conception, we have to accept that on faith. And many, even in uh, the Christian world, do not believe that and have not accepted it. Yet, at the end of that message, we talked about why it's important to have this orthodox Christian doctrine and understand it, because it's necessary to both the Bible and to our salvation. We have to have a Jesus Christ that has both divine and human natures. So now today, Matthew, he's given us this important information on who Jesus Christ is and how he came to this earth. So we're going to push a little bit further and we're going to now get his reasoning for why Christ came to this earth. So if you will, I'm going to read out the English Standard Version here, uh, but it should follow pretty uh, closely to the King James. Uh, We're going to read... Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and it's telling the story. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I just want to take a second here to emphasize verse 21 again. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So in our meditative reading, like we already talked about uh, today, the Messiah had long ago been promised who would cleanse Israel from sin and uncleanness. Yet it's clear from the Gospels and secular history that the Hebrew nation did not understand what the Messiah was supposed to do when he actually arrived in the world. A few scriptural examples of this we can see in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod the Great tries to kill the baby Jesus because he thought he was going to be a threat to his earthly power, not realizing, of course, that Jesus had come to set up that heavenly kingdom and his kingdom was not of this earth. In Luke chapter 12, we see a man in the crowd who tries to get Jesus, tell my brother, you know, to divide the inheritance with me. That was what was on that man's heart, not the more important matter that Jesus rebukes him for and tries to focus him back on to look for the heavenly treasures and not the earthly treasures. So there's obviously a misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do even in his own day. Another example, in John chapter 6, the crowd grumbles and asks for Jesus to give them manna, ignoring Jesus' statement that it is He who is the bread of life. So therefore, you know, there's little evidence that the multitudes in the Bible, that they ever truly understood their needs before a holy God, especially those who were of the more ritualistic religious variety. Likewise, I'll make an application to the church today. I believe that many in modern Christianity often feel, or I feel, that they've often forgotten about why Jesus Christ came into this world. A couple of modern examples would be the popular word of faith in the social gospel movements of today. You know, the word of faith, it seeks to enrich themselves to take control of their own destinies by becoming little gods and just speaking things into existence. While the peddlers of the social gospel believe that they will solve all of humanity's need and suffering through spreading out of wealth of the world and using man's methods and man's works to bring about social justice. You know, I'm not standing up here and saying that there's anything wrong with working hard or standing up for what's right. But when these pursuits displace or misrepresent one of the true or the true mission of Jesus Christ, there is a major problem with your form of religion. It's not going to have any power or change your neighborhood, let alone the destiny of that single hell-bound soul. So when I study here, or when I come up here to preach, and while I'm studying, I always ask myself the following question, why is this important? You know, I don't want myself 
or any of you to go away today thinking, you know, I've been better served if I had just slept in today, got a few more hours of shut-eye, or maybe it's a nice day, I could have been out there on the boat. You know, you're not here for spiritual fluff, you're not here for a 45-minute pep talk, you're here to hear the Word. So why do I think that it's important for us this morning to understand Christ's mission as it's presented here in the first chapter of Matthew? A couple of reasons, or well, three reasons, I guess, is that this verse number one is absolutely a key verse in the entire Bible. You know, it helps us not only to understand the rest of what Matthew is going to tell us, but it's going to help us unlock and understand the rest of the Bible as well. You know, I've had a lot of people, you know, and, and I've even had these questions early on. How does the Old Testament and the New Testament How do they come together? And if you understand how God views sin, that sin was such an important and devastating matter in humanity that it required the destruction of His own Son, you'll better understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament come together. So it'll give us the ability to reconcile the entire counsel of God's Word. It's all directed towards His Son and towards His Son's mission. Another thing is that we can give honor where honor is due. If we understand Jesus' mission, we can avoid what the Jews were doing in the first century where they did not honor Jesus Christ had come to save them, and they did not honor that. In fact, they crucified Him. So we don't want to be found rejecting God's plan for our lives because we think that somehow we're good enough to make it to heaven without Christ. There's a lot of self-righteousness. It's both outside the church and some even inside the church. So we need to bring focus also to our testimony and to our actions in the present life. I think many recently have even been thinking, you know, what does a genuine Christian genuinely want uh, to know? What, do they, what should they be praying for? What should we be teaching and speaking to other people about? What should we be living for? Well, if Jesus Christ is our King, should it not be for His mission, for the, what He came to this earth to do? So in a few moments here, I, just, I want to break down verse 21 just a little bit more, and hopefully it will give us a better understanding of Christ's mission. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. But first, you shall call His name Jesus. You know, many of us are, you know, have the conception today because we don't, for the most part, in the United States and North America, call our children Jesus. That's not an acceptable name in our society. So we think that it's always been this way, that this was a name that was reserved specifically for the Messiah, but that's not really the case. In fact, Jesus was a very common name in Israel. And as, as uh, I've studied, I've realized that only a few names really made up, I think it was 12 or 14, maybe even 20 names, something like that, made up 90-some percent of the names given to children in Israel in the first century. So when we hear that 
the name Jesus, understand that this was a common name. Now, he had an uncommon name that was given by God, too, that we just read in this text, Emmanuel, right? God with us. That was another name given to Jesus Christ by God himself. But here he's named Jesus, the angel specifically, as the angels always do when it's something important to God's plan of salvation. The naming of the children are solely God's responsibility. And here we see God gives the name, you will call him Jesus. Common name. In Greek, it's the equivalent to the Hebrew, Yeshua. So if you hear Yeshua, you probably now you're thinking of another Old Testament name that kind of even in English sounds like that, Joshua, right? Which means Yahweh or Jehovah saves. So people would name their children Jesus with the hope that they had had the little baby that was going to be the Savior that God had sent. So here we have Jesus, a common name given to our Lord and our Savior. He is the actual Messiah. And I've talked about this a little bit before. We hear Jesus Christ, and we, today we think, well, that's, that's his name, right? Like if I was going to write a letter to him, Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. Not really, that's... It's Jesus is his, his given name, and then Christ is a title. He's the Messiah. It's a Greek equivalent of Messiah. So it's what Jesus is it? If you were looking at all the other Jesuses that even show up in the Bible, well, this is Jesus the Messiah. So isn't it interesting that he's named after Joshua? If we start to think back in our minds to the Old Testament book of Uh, Joshua. What did Joshua do? He was a conqueror, right? And was there anything that the soul, any part of land that the sole of his foot, the scripture says, when his sole of his foot touched that land, it was going to belong to him, right? Joshua is a conqueror. There were cities, you know, there were rivers in the way. We studied that in Sunday school this morning. Rivers were in the way. That didn't matter. They crossed over them by God's help. Yet there were walled cities that were impossible for them to take. It didn't matter. God brought the walls down. You know, there were giants in the land. There were, there were other people who were maybe far more numerous, more mighty than the Israelites. Remember, these people have been slaves for years. They, they were not trained soldiers necessarily. Didn't matter. Joshua went forth. And that land was conquered. So here's what we see. Our our Savior is named after Joshua, shares essentially the same name as Joshua. So what does that tell us about his mission? When he says that he's going to save us from sin, is there anything that can stand in the way? No. So I think that Joshua... Yeshua, Jesus, is the perfect name for our Savior. Because he, Christ, He wants us to have victory over our sins, no matter how entrenched that they seem to be. So you'll call His name Jesus. Next, He will save His people. He will save His people. 
the first, just break down, he will save. You know, it indicates that there, if you're going to be saved from something, there must be an imminent threat, right, that you cannot deliver yourself from. As I was studying this, I, I, a thought came to my mind. When I preached this before, I, I thought of uh, somebody whose head was stuck in the jaws of an alligator. You know, probably you'd need to be saved. And then it made me think, it's like, has anybody ever, you know, been like strangled by their pet boa constrictor? Yes, they have. Thirteen of them apparently have since 1980. I don't know who gets to keep those records, but... If you had a pet boa constrictor that's, you know, 10 feet long is the story that I read that had decided that day it was hungry and it was tired of you and maybe you weren't feeding it enough and it wrapped itself around your neck and it started to squeeze, as we know, you will need salvation. You will need somebody to come save you from that instance because there's going to be nothing that you can do to get yourself out of that situation. So Jesus, he came to save his people. So there's something out there that we cannot save ourselves from. And he will save us even at the expense of his own life and comfort. Well, who's he going to save? Well, he says he's going to save his people. I'm not looking to fuss and argue over just who his people are. You know, if you ask the first century Jews or maybe some of the dispensationalists, they would say, well, he was only there to save the nation of Israel. You know, if you ask the Calvinists, they're going to say, well, he's only referencing the elect who he foreordained to be saved. Well, if you talk to the Wesleyan Arminians, they may say that, well, God, he's there to save those whom God foreknew from the foundations of the world would be saved. But regardless of all of this, It's saying that it's His people, they belong to Him who who has called them. Thus, our responsibility, if we want to know what we should be doing when it comes to speaking this message, we don't know exactly who His people are. We heard some wonderful testimonies uh, this week of people that, that were down and out. They were far away from Jesus Christ and Some may have looked at their life and they may have said they can't be saved. They're probably not his person. But praise the Lord, they were his person. They belong to him. So we don't know who his people are. I mean, we can look into the depths of theology and we we may not know who his people are. All we know is they belong to him and no other. So who are his people? They're simply his These are the people who willingly belong to Christ. They do not belong to the devil. They do not belong to the world. They're not out there on their own cognition. You know, you hear people, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. No, you're not. That's right. So if you think that, newsflash, if you belong to Christ, you are not your own. You belong to Him. So here's a good question, just to stop them for a second. You know, who do you belong to? Who are you following? Paul gives us a way of maybe deciding where we're truly at. He says in Romans six sixteen through 18, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? 
And then he takes this into the spiritual realm. He says, you can either be a servant of sin, which leads to death, or you could be obedient to righteousness, which leads to life eternal. But he says, but thanks be to God that those of you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become the slaves of righteousness. We belong to somebody. So there's nobody that's in this world today whether they're at a crazy demon circus or not, that doesn't belong to somebody. Do you belong to Jesus Christ is the question. So he came to save, and what did he come to save them from? From their sins. You know, I thought of this, and I thought, what in the world did the first century Jews think? And and even today, what do people think when they read this verse? I mean, we've already talked about it quite a bit this morning. What did they think when they got to the end of this? In a way, you know, you're studying this verse. You're now on the edge of your seat. I know there's a special Savior out there. I know that he's going to save his people. What what, what is he going to save me from? And I can almost imagine when people hear sins. Sins? I mean, Jesus, the, the Romans are in, invading, you know, they're, they're in our nation. We're, we're a people that's under bondage. You know, there's, there's hunger, there's starvation. You've got people like your uh, disciple Matthew that was, was keeping us poor and oppressed and, you know, save us from our sins? And quite honestly, think about, think about maybe why they would have thought this, you know, you know, God sent Moses, and Israel was delivered from the Egyptians. God sent Joshua, and Canaan was conquered. God sent Gideon, and the Midianites were defeated. God anointed King David and the Philistines. They were heard from no more. God heard Hezekiah's prayer, and the Assyrian armies was nothing but dead men by morning, as the Scripture says. God raised up King Cyrus, and the Israelites were returned to Jerusalem. Even in that intertestamental history, there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus who led a successful revolt against the Seleucid Empire in 167 B.C. Many people thought that he had been sent by God. So every time a Savior was sent, they were delivered from a literal enemy. So what's wrong? I imagine the question. And even in today's society, what's wrong with this King Jesus? Why can't he do something spectacular like that? And like I said, there's still people even today that believe that the work of Jesus is undone. You know, that he's going to have to come back. He's going to set up this literal kingdom. The Jews, you know, will come in. They'll make animal sacrifices again. You know, maybe it is finished didn't really mean that that was the full plan and that it was completed, but there's still many parts to be carried out before the judgment. So why was salvation from sin so important? What was Matthew, what was John the Baptist and all those Old Testament prophets trying to tell Israel and consequently us today? They were telling all of us that our greatest enemy is not the other nations, 
It is not the unbelievers. It is not our flesh even. For the sinner, their greatest and most fearsome enemy right now at this very moment is the wrath of a holy God. Did not Jesus, think about this, did not Jesus warn us not to fear those who could only kill the body, but after that do no more? But rather, we are to fear the God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You know, as I was studying this, I came across uh, J.C. Ryle's uh, commentary here for this this chapter and, and what he has to say about sin. I think it puts it in a little bit, it gives a little bit more context. And, you know, if, if I were to ask uh, people and people were to ask me prior, prior to uh, researching this, you know, they'd ask me, what, what is sin? Well, you know, sin, it's something bad. It's doing things that God doesn't want you to do. Uh, you know, maybe somebody could even add, you know, sin leads to death. It requires forgiveness. That's all true. But I like what J.C. Ryle says. He says here that in sin, we are saved from the guilt of our sins by the atoning blood of Christ. So there's guilt associated with sin. We're saved from the dominion and the power of sin by His sanctifying Spirit. There's dominion and power in sin. We are saved from the presence of sin when we are taken out of this world to dwell with Him. And one day we'll be saved from the consequences of sin when we are given a resurrected body and glorified eternal body at that last day. So sin has a multifaceted look to it. It's a three, in a way, it's a three, four-dimensional object, you could say. It's, it's bigger and it's worse than what we think it is. We, we just think sin. Okay, well, I didn't do what God told me to do. But there's guilt with sin. There's a dominion. There's a power to sin. There's a presence of sin. There's a consequence to sin. And J.C. Ryle, he finishes this uh, section. He says, blessed and holy are Christ's people. He says, listen to this, from sorrow, cross, and conflict, they are not saved, but they are saved from sin forevermore. They are cleansed from the guilt by Christ's blood. They are made fit for heaven by Christ's Spirit. This is salvation. The person who clings to sin is not yet saved. I hope that helps us all to kind of understand what sin is a little bit more. It's not just, well, I did something bad, God didn't like that. No, you're going to have guilt from that. That's going to take over your life. It's going to become dominant in your life. It's going to have dominion. It's going to have power over you. The presence of it will stink before God, and then there's consequences of death. Sin is not something small. It makes me also think, you know, I've heard varying testimonies, people that, you know, they were saved from sin gloriously. They, they, they left everything, and then other people struggled, they struggled, they struggled, and they may even still be struggling. Does that mean that God has not delivered them from sin? I think there's some sins that carry more guilt. And a lot of times, those are things that have to be struggled with in our lives. But Jesus Christ, He died to save us from our sins and all of those aspects of sin. 
He saved us from all those aspects, and He may still be working with you today, sanctifying you, cleansing you, and keeping you. I mean, think of Paul. Even Paul still had that thorn in his side. So, now hopefully you can see why this salvation is so important. Sin is a bigger problem than what we anticipate, what we think it is. So look at it this way. Why were the Romans and the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians all upon God's people? It was for the same reason that the Philistines were so easily able to overcome Samson, even though he was the strongest man in the world, strongest man in the Bible. But all it took was that little snake Delilah. You know, she cut his hair and he was weak. Why? He had disobeyed God. In other words, he had sinned. Thus Jesus, he came to save his people from the root cause of their misery, sin. He didn't come to put a band-aid on it. So do you remember, I'm taking you back to the Old Testament again, do you remember there was a time when Israel, they stood on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and one was reciting the blessings of God if they obeyed the law, the other, the curses of God that would befall them if they disobeyed. Do you think that a perfect and holy God ever forgot that? Or was he never going to enforce his word? A word which the Bible says cannot fail. And if he did not forget that covenant that was recited on those two mountains, do you think that God who warned that the soul that sins shall die will ever forget your sin? Or just wink at it, let it go? Never. God is a just God. All sin will be paid for, but listen, it will either be paid for in hell or upon the cross. It will all be paid for. We need a Savior. You cannot do this yourself. That's the message that Matthew is going to build upon. You and Jesus in his ministry, he's going to build upon that message that he came to save from sin. You can't do it yourself. So I'm concluding uh, here. So in conclusion, you know, I have to think of of Joseph here when he heard. This was was a message that was delivered by an angelic messenger in his dream. Can you imagine that Joseph was maybe a little perplexed? (laughs) You know, God, really? This baby will do all of this? I mean, look at the facts. You know, here we have a tremendous Savior for all the sins of the world. It was a fragile baby in the care of a young couple. You know, they were a well-connected couple in a way. They were of the line of David, you know, related to the priests, but they were incredibly poor. The Bible says that Jesus, you know, he grew, he, he came as a branch out of the stump of Jesse. There was nothing left. And that's the case. That's, that's where Mary and Joseph are. They're incredibly poor. They're nobodies in the land. And now they have this baby and they're surrounded by enemies. We're going to see that uh, here in the, in the preceding chapter. They're surrounded by enemies now even. But doesn't this entire beginning just ooze of God's divine plan? 
Does he not love to use those seemingly insignificant things to bring about deliverance from these outsized enemies? You know, think about it for a minute. God used Moses' staff to close the Red Sea upon Pharaoh's army. He said, you will see them no more. He used a little teenage boy with a sling and five smooth stones to slay a blasphemous giant in full battle armor. He used a handful of flour and a you know, little jar of oil to sustain a widow and her son, and a prophet even, for three years. A handful of flour for three years. Can you imagine that? Then he used, it says, a cloud the size of a man's hand at the end of that same drought that almost killed the widow and her son and the prophet and everybody else. He used a cloud the size of a man's hand to bring the rain that delivered the nation. And I always wondered this, and I tell you, up until I studied this, I always wondered, why in the world was it that it was the jawbone of a donkey that Samson took up to slay a thousand Philistines? Doesn't that seem weird? But now I know God wants to get the message across loud and clear that he will use the small and the ordinary things to bring a great deliverance to his people. So we should not be surprised that when there is a sin problem abounding in humanity, it's a special baby who's born to a young, poor couple in the backwaters of Israel who's going to accomplish this. God uses these seemingly insignificant means to bring about an extraordinary end an end which no man will be able to boast in, but rather all men must take a step back and give full honor to God and Him alone. As Brother Justin comes, I'm going to close with this meditation from the Puritan Stephen Charnock, who likewise, he stood in awe of God's plan of salvation. And he had this to say. I'm going to kind of read it again a little bit slow because... It's kind of older English, and and I don't want the meaning to get lost. When he's comparing salvation and what Jesus did to creation and what God did, and really he's comparing the first chapter of Genesis, let's say, to the first chapter of Matthew. And he said this. He said, The power of God in creation requires not those degrees of admiration as in redemption. In other words, the power of God in redemption is greater than that in creation. He said, In creation, the world was erected from nothing. As there was nothing to act, so there was nothing to oppose. There was no victorious devil in this world that had to be subdued. There was no thundering law that had to be silenced. There was no death to be conquered, no transgression to be pardoned and rooted out. There was no hell to be shut. There was no ignominious death upon a cross to be suffered. It had been in the nature of a thing, an easier thing to divine power to have created a new world than repaired a broken and purified purified a polluted one. He said it was, it was easier to create anew than it was to repair what had been broken and to purify what had been polluted. This is the most 
admirable work that God ever brought forth in the world, greater than all the marks of his power in the first creation. And as I was thinking of that, I was thinking of a man who, as a child, had lived a very uh, rebellious life. I believe his father was a minister, but this man was nowhere close to that. He lived a rebellious life, and his father, the minister, took him to the only place he thought that his son could get help. He took him to the Moody Bible Institute. And at the time, it was being run uh, by a man, if you look back in Christian history, he's written quite a few books and and fairly well-known, by the name of R.A. Torrey. And he set his son downed at R.A. Torrey's desk, and he told him his struggles, and he poured out his heart to R.A. Torrey. And R.A. Torrey said, I, I really, this is not a reform school, sir, but if, if he will promise to come to me uh, at a certain time, two or three days a week, we're going to study the Bible together, we're going to uh, work together, I'll work with him and if he will calm down, if he'll give his life to Jesus Christ, then, then maybe we've got something here. And I'll, I'll give it a try, but I'm not promising you anything, sir. Well, the boy did get saved. And he actually became a minister himself. He became an instructor at the Moody Bible Institute. And he wrote this song that in a minute, I don't know, did Justin, did you get it? Okay. <laughs> He wrote this song, and it just it, the, a line of the song came to me as he was sitting there reflecting on his life and on what Jesus Christ had done for him, and the line that just came thundering to me was, Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Jesus Christ had a mission, church. Should this too not be our mission? We, we have a world, as I talked about, that's going into the occult. Why, why are they going there? Why are they going there to be entertained? I think they're going there because they're looking for something, something that they do not have. They feel the burden and the weight of those sins upon them. And they, they don't know what the problem is. They, they, don't, they haven't received the correct diagnosis, but... Jesus Christ, you know, as Matthew's writing about him, he has not only the diagnosis, but he has the cure. The virgin, she would give birth to a child. They were to name him Jesus, and he would save his people. He was to save you and I. And others out there in this world that haven't even heard of him yet, from their sins. I'm going to turn it over to to Justin to sing. If you need to pray, feel free to, to come and pray.